Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Hey, good morning. So, my name's Kyle, if I haven't met you yet. And like Emily said, today we're continuing our Life Together series. And so, these last few weeks we've been looking at our life together as a church. And so, we've looked at topics like discipleship. And last week, Brandon taught on the gospel. And so, today we're talking about community. And so, what I want to talk about today is just this. What makes Christian community unique? What is it about, specifically about Christians, that makes what we do in community different from the rest of the world? Uh, I thought it was really interesting. I had a conversation with one of the chaplains over at Harvard, and he works for Greg Epstein, who's the lead chaplain at Harvard. He's an atheist. And we were talking about this community that they formed on campus, and he was telling me how they've tested out secular church. And what they basically do is they get people together for service once a week, and they'll sing some positive songs, and they'll have a message that's positive, maybe from someone who's in the tech industry, talk about universal values. And usually they'll even have a separate kids service that you can drop your kids off at. They'll have events during the week, places that you can come serve, get to know people. And so what I want to ask today is, what makes us different? What is it about Christianity and Christian community that's different? What makes us unique in what we do as a church? And so we're looking at the book of First Peter chapter 2, and what it's the Apostle Peter who's writing to this community, and he's writing to these Christians who are in a largely non-Christian society. What he's trying to do is show them what does it look like to be the community of God, to be this new people that God has redeemed. And so I think Peter shows us at least three things that we learn about the new community that Christians have. We see that we have a unique foundation, that we have a unique identity, and that we have a unique mission. So I want to talk about all three of those this morning. So the first thing that I want us to look at is our unique foundation. And it's simply, it's this. It's that Christian community is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is at the bedrock. When you go all the way down, what you find is Jesus. He's the defining aspect of Christian community. It's in the name. Like, we are Christians. Who we are is defined by Jesus. So if you look with me at um, at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it Peter calls Jesus a living stone, uh, which is unique language. And then you skip down to verse 6, and he calls Jesus our cornerstone. So I need to actually admit to you that uh, even though we sing it in a ton of songs and everything, I, until this week, had no idea what a cornerstone actually was. Uh, <laughs> so I had to, I, don't, I don't know what I thought it was, but I was reading some different commentators, and they were discussing what exactly is a cornerstone. And it's actually it's very literal. A uh, cornerstone is the stone that goes in the corner of a building. So uh, in the foundation of a building, you have on the farthest edge, you put a cornerstone in the foundation. And from that cornerstone, you measure everything else. Everything else in the building is measured, is built around that cornerstone right there. And so what Peter's saying in this passage is that Jesus is that for us. Jesus is literally our cornerstone. He is the defining aspect of Christian community. We literally, we measure everything based off him. Jesus comes first in our priorities. One way you could say it is that in Christian community, if you put community first and Jesus second, you get neither. 
But if you put Jesus first, you get both. Why is that? Because Jesus is the foundation. He's, he's, he's the bedrock. He's the, the core of our community together as a church. I love the way that one commentator, Karen Job, says it. She says that Jesus is the touchstone of one's ultimate destiny. I love that. Jesus is literally, he's the defining aspect that shows us what we were meant to be. He shows us our destiny, our purpose, our meaning. It's all found in Jesus. He's the one who shows that to us. He's our foundation for our community. And so just to unpack that a little bit more, what does it, what does it mean for Jesus to be the defining characteristic of Christian community? I, I think one thing that it means is that when someone believes in Jesus, their entire life is transformed and becomes centered around him, built on him. We'll talk about this more in the next point, but before someone's a Christian, in God's eyes, they're unholy, they're viewed as sinful, um, moral, moral failures, but through Jesus, and when someone believes in Jesus, in God's eyes, we become holy and pure and clean. And when that happens, our entire life is transformed. So we become part of this new community that God's made for us. It's through believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we're given this new identity. And when that happens, Jesus becomes our foundation. Literally, the, the thing that comes first in everything in our lives, it's Jesus. Our society builds community around so many things. Around shared preferences, shared personalities, shared hobbies, shared politics. The Christian community says we have something that goes even deeper something that is stronger, more sturdy, something that can stand against the storms of life. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation that unites all of us. I love the way that the Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians. He's addressing, there's divisions in the church in Ephesus, and he's getting at what is it that brings the whole church together? What is it that unites Christians And he says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. See, when Jesus becomes the cornerstone of your life, you are no longer a stranger. You're not an alien. You're not viewed as some other. You become part of a family. You become a friend. You're brought into a new community of people where Jesus is the foundation. He's the one who unites all of us. He's able to bring people together from all these different backgrounds, all these different cultures, personalities, preferences, and he's able to unite them as one. That, that only happens through Jesus. Whenever, uh, when, when someone believes in Jesus, you become close to Jesus. And when all of us become close to Jesus together, we, by default, become close to one another. You can't avoid it. That's what it means to be part of the new community that God's made. Jesus becomes a foundation. When Alex and I moved to Boston, I think we knew like two people, maybe three people in Boston. But whenever we started to go to a community group, we met people who grew up in different parts of the country and different kinds of families, different kinds of personalities, different preferences, people from all over the world in our community group. And still what we found in our group are some of our closest friends in the city. Why is it that people who grew up in different parts of the world, people who grew up with different cultures, people who politically vote different ways, why is it that they can be united as one? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the one who does that. There's a reason that Christianity is the most geographically and culturally diverse religion, major 
religion in the world. When you look at the, the data for Christianity, it's spread out through almost every continent. It's literally by far the most diverse religion. It's able to include people who come from radically different places. Why is that? It's because of Jesus. He's able to unite people, to bring people together as one who otherwise wouldn't know each other. Jesus is able to do that because he's our foundation. He's what's at all the way down. What you find in Christian community is Jesus. I love the way that Esau McCauley, he's a scholar at Wheaton College. He says this in his book, Reading While Black. He says, God sees the creation of a community of different cultures united by faith in his son as a manifestation of the expansive nature of his grace. God is trying to show off just how big and gracious he is. God wants to show that he's not God just over one one type of people or one country. His grace is so big that he's able to bring people together from all around the world, from different cultures, from different places, and he's able to unite them. He's trying to do that through faith in Jesus to make one new people, to show forth his diversity to us. And so I just want to ask, how is it that we need to love people who are different than us? For you personally, what does it look like for you to get to know people who maybe don't look like you, who maybe don't have the same hobbies as you, people you don't really vibe with? What does it look like to actually get to know them? Maybe for you, it just looks like saying hi to someone at church or in your community group. Maybe that person that no one really talks to. Maybe it just means going up and powering through the awkward conversation. Like, hi, my name's Kyle. What's your name? And just like get to know them. Maybe for you, it means inviting someone over to your home. A shared meal. Listen, inviting someone to your table to have a shared meal with you is one of the most powerful things you can do. Maybe it looks like just inviting someone some good Christian hospitality to love someone and get to know them. Listen, this is, this is what we know. It's never okay for someone to show up to our church, to our community groups, and be completely ignored by everyone else. We must be the kind of church who loves welcoming people in, who's kind, welcoming, loving, who makes new friendships. We must be that kind of church. And we are, by God's grace, because of what God's done in us through Jesus. Jesus, he's the foundation of Christian community. It makes us radically unique from the rest of the world. We only get this, this kind of community, when Jesus is the foundation. Listen, Jesus, he was a Middle Eastern Jew who is crucified with a Roman form of torture. And it's that Jesus who's united people from all around the world through his death, through his perfect life, his death and resurrection. What Jesus has done is he's forgiven people from all nations. He's forgiven them of their sins so they can be made new. And then what he's also done through his death is united people as one. That's what we get in Jesus. In the gospel, we find a unity that is so great, that's so powerful. That's what Jesus does in us. It's our unique foundation. Peter also tells us there's a second thing that makes Christianity unique. We have a unique identity. And I, I, I'm really excited to talk about this because I, I think this is probably the biggest thing that Peter's really getting at in this chapter. It's the new identity that we receive in Jesus. Who Jesus is determines who Christians are. What we see in this passage is that Jesus is a living stone, so we become a living stone. I know language is weird. We'll talk about what does it mean to be a living stone. We'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus is chosen, so we're chosen. Who Jesus is literally determines who we are. 
we get a new identity as the people of God. Let me show it to you in this text. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, let me read it again. It says, As you come to him, that's Jesus, who is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So because Jesus is a living stone, verse 4, we also are living stones. Verse 5. So what does it mean to be a living stone? It's language that we don't use today, but Peter, he helps explain it in verse five. He says, as living stones, you're being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house for what? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. What Peter's saying is that Christians are like stones being built together into a house, and that house is the temple of God. This idea of a temple, it's kind of lost on us, But if you were a first century Jew, I mean, this would be so powerful. What Peter's saying is that we are together the temple of God. For the nation of Israel, the temple was at the center of everything. The temple was the core of their community because the temple is the place where the glory of God dwelt. If you wanted to encounter God, you went to the temple. If you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you went to a priest at the temple. The temple is the place where heaven touched earth, where you had the presence of God, his glory. You got to experience it in a way that you couldn't find anywhere else. And then what Peter says is that we are that. We are the temple together. We're all like stones built together into this spiritual house, into this temple of God. So together, the identity that God's given us is that we're the temple. We get God We get his presence. We get to know him. We get to experience him. We get to encounter him in all of his beauty and all of his majesty. We get to see just how amazing and incredible and mind-blowing God is. That's what we get as a community. It's our identity. It's, It's who we are. We get to know God himself. We are the temple of God united together. That's who we are. Peter, he keeps going with this beautiful analogy. If you look at 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 7, he says in verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, that's Jesus, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I think this is so beautiful. What Peter's saying is, listen, I know you have so much shame in your life. And friends, I I know many of us do. I know I feel in my own life, oftentimes deep shame over the ways that I fail. Wondering, God, why would why would you love me with all the failures I make? With all the stupid stuff I do, you would love me? Maybe you feel that way. And what Peter's saying is when you believe in Jesus, Jesus takes your shame and he gives you honor. He gives you love. He gives you acceptance. He brings you in. He forgives you. He gives you this new identity and says, you are mine. The new identity that we get in Jesus, Jesus looks at us and says, you are forgiven. You are clean. You are my chosen one. You matter. That's what Jesus says to us. That's what we get in the gospel through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is this new identity that takes away our shame and gives us honor. 
because of the forgiveness and love that we get through Jesus. In the gospel, your identity is not defined by your mistakes and regrets. It's defined by the acceptance and the forgiveness that you find in Jesus Christ. That's the new identity that we get in Jesus. Peter, he keeps going. <laughs> he keeps just building on this beautiful identity that we have in Jesus. Look with me at 1 Peter 2, verse 8. It says, for those who don't believe Jesus is, verse 8, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter says, there are some people who disobey the word. They trip over Jesus. They trip over the cornerstone. And they disobey him like they were destined to do. I wish that we had more time to really unpack what that means, because that's a loaded statement. But Peter's essentially saying there are some who aren't destined to know Jesus, who stumble, who, who don't obey him. But then he says in verse 9, but you are chosen. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is beautiful. This, this verse, verse 9, is a clear reference to the book of Exodus. The story of the Exodus, it's all about how the people of Israel, they were in Egypt and they were in slavery. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. But then what God did is he came and rescued them, you know, the 10 plagues. And so he brings them out of Egypt and they go into the desert. And then in the wilderness, God comes and appears to them at Mount Sinai. The glory of God descends on the mountain and God speaks to them. And then in Exodus chapter 19, verse six, this is what God says to his people. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be priests. You will all know me. You will all come into my presence. You will know who I am and you'll be a holy nation. Out of all the people in the world, you'll be the ones I chose to live a new life with me. And then what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 is we are that. We are a, a chosen race. We're a, a holy priesthood. We're a holy nation to God. That's who we are. That's who God's made us to be. God's given us his love, his, his affection. God has chosen us. God has made us his treasure and his delight. That's the identity that we have in Christ. And so verse 10, 1 Peter 2, it says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. He's saying you've gone from being not a people to now you've been brought in to a new community defined by the mercy that you get only through Jesus dying in your place. Now, I think it's really interesting that, uh, you know, you can't be a new people on your own, right? There's no way with this new identity that God's given us. It doesn't say God's made you a holy person. Although that is true. God does do that. I'm not trying to negate that. But the language, this is all communal. This is not individualistic. He's saying you're a holy people. You're once not my people, but now you are my people. Here's the implication. If you're a Christian, you can't ignore Christian community because it's who you are. It's, it's our identity. God has redefined who we are. And what he said is you are a new people united together to be made new, to experience my presence. I love the way that C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Four Loves. 
He says, Christ who said to his disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. If God has chosen you, and he has, if you're a Christian, God's chosen you and brought you to himself, then God's also chosen you to be a part of a new community of people. He's chosen who you'll be around, and that's the church. Jesus has given that to you. I think one way that we live this out is by our gathering together on Sunday morning. I'm so glad that you're here with us. And another way that we do that as a church is through our community groups. Emily talked about this already, but with community, we're launching our community groups back. And so we have a table in the back after service. You can come and chat with me. I would love to get you connected with a group. This is a place where you can get connected, find deep community, really get to know people in our church. Listen, maybe for you, part of what it looks like to live out your new identity as the people of God is you need to go deeper with the people in your group. You need to stop holding back and really be honest, open up about what's going on in your life. Talk with people. Life's hard. We get that. Boston is not an easy city to live in. Maybe you need to show up to your group and be real about what's going on and your struggles and let people care for you. Let people speak the word of God into your life. Let people pray for you. Whatever it looks like, we need to live out our identity as the people of God. I love, there's this illustration that Ed Stetzer and Eric Geiger are using their, using their book, Transformational Groups. And talking about what it looks like to actually live in community. And they talk about the redwoods out in California. And it's fascinating. Redwood trees are incredibly tall. They're massive. But surprisingly, redwood trees, they have incredibly shallow roots. But they're relatively sturdy. When storms come, they don't just tip over. They're able to stand. Why? Because all these redwood trees, their roots actually interlock. They join together to hold each other up. That's what Christian community was meant to be. Listen, you need people who you're going to put down roots with. You need people who are going to hold you up through the storms of life. You need people who are going to support you, who are going to keep you steady, who are going to help you follow Jesus more and more. That's what Christian community is meant to be. And that's who God has made us to be. That's our identity as the people of God. We have, as a Christian community, we're unique. We're different from the world in so many ways. We have a unique foundation. We have a unique identity. And then Peter also shows us a third thing that we have. It's a unique mission that he's given, that God has given to us. What Peter gets at is that we have been given this mission to tell the world about what God has done in our lives. Let me show it to you in verse 9. Um, in verse 9 of 1 Peter 2, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One thing I think is really interesting that kind of gets lost in the English here is that the word you here, the, the verb for the verb in chapter nine for that you may proclaim the excellencies and then of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is not singular, it's plural. So let me nerd out just for a minute about some grammar here. Peter's not saying, I just saved you individually so that you as an individual can go to the world and tell the world about Jesus. Although we should do that, please individually go share the gospel with people. That's great. But it's not what he's getting at. He's saying you all, all plural, that you all may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As a community, we have been saved so that we can be sent 
to go into the world and show the world just how good God is. To tell the world, God has done something amazing in my life. Look at this good God who's brought me out of spiritual darkness, to spiritual life. That's the mission that God's given to us. We're going to talk a lot about mission next week. Brandon's going to preach on that. So I'm not going to belabor this, but I do want to really get at what does it look like to do mission in community? Unique. What does it look like for us to do mission together with one another to be able to reach and love Boston? Well, I think first, first Peter two, chapter nine, we have to talk about what does it mean for us to actually be priests? First Peter two, nine, just to read it again, it says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does it mean to actually be a priest? It means this to mediate between God and humanity. The priest is the one who would go into the temple and when a sacrifice had to be made, they would sacrifice whatever sacrificial animal so that there could be a reunification, a reconciliation between God and humanity. And then Peter's saying, that's our job for the world. Peter's saying, we are called to be like priests to the world around us. They go and say, hey, would you, would you be reconciled with God? We know the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. Would you come and have, have a relationship with him? Would, would you come and be united to the God of the universe who loves you? And Peter's saying, that's what we're supposed to go and do to the world. We're supposed to proclaim the excellencies of the God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I do want to talk for a minute about this whole idea of gospel proclamation. I'm guessing for some of us, when I talk about going to share the gospel with non-Christians, you probably start to get just a little bit tense. And you're feeling like, hey, isn't that kind of wrong? If someone believes different from you. Isn't it kind of wrong to force your ideas on them? Why would, why would you be so arrogant to go to a friend, a loved one, a neighbor, and tell them about what you believe? And so I, I want to talk about that just for a minute. Is it, is it wrong to share the gospel? Why, why do we even do that? Why is Peter telling us to do that? And I think it's this. It's because sharing the gospel with someone, it's actually the most loving thing we could do. Listen, if what the gospel says is true, that we are in darkness without Jesus— that we are left in our sins, separated from God, then the most hateful thing that we could do is keep quiet about the Jesus who has made a way for our sins to be forgiven so we can be reconciled with God. That'd actually be mean to not tell people about that, to let them just stay in darkness. The most loving thing that we can actually do is say, no, Jesus has made a way for us to go from darkness to light. We need to lovingly, not in, not in an arrogant or mean or demeaning way. That's not what I'm talking about, but in a loving, gentle, genuine, like relational way. Peter's saying, go to people, share the gospel with them, share this good news about what God's done in your life. When there's something in our lives that we deeply love, it's not hard for us to talk with it about other people. If you spent some time around me, you know, I will talk obnoxiously about Jenny's ice cream. If you have not had Jenny's ice cream, it is great. You can get it from Whole Foods. Boston doesn't have actual physical locations. I think it's a problem. Uh, maybe one of you can reach out to the company and tell them to start a location here. But they're great. Like, it's, it's such good ice cream. It's pricey. So I need, yeah, anyways. But it's, it's really good. Like, it's, yeah, I love Jenny's. Alex does too. It's one of our favorite things to go and get is to get some Jenny's ice cream. We love talking about it. I love telling people about how good their waffle cones smell when you walk into a store. I love to try to get people hooked. I feel like I'm like a dealer of Jenny's ice cream. I'm trying to like get people on it. 
But it, like, it, it's, it's great. And so I naturally, I want to talk with people about it because I love it. Because it's good. It's good ice cream. Listen, when you have something you love, it's not hard to talk about it. We love talking about our favorite shows, our favorite sports teams, things in life that we love. We naturally talk with other people about. The same should be true of the gospel. God has done something amazing in our lives, the best thing in our lives, to take us from being unholy in God's eyes to now being made new and clean and pure and holy. We can't keep that to ourselves. The most loving thing we can do is to go and share that with people, to tell other people about that. I love part of our strategy as a church is that every community group has a pocket of people that they're trying to love and reach. By pocket of people, I just mean some sort of group, some sort of, some sort of, uh, some sort of like group of people, maybe an organization, some sort of area that they're trying to take the gospel into, to share it, to love people, to serve them and to tell them about Jesus. For one of our community groups, it's Brighton Main Streets. And so we'll do things like movie nights out in Brighton Common. It's a way Brighton Main Streets has said, hey, this is a need for the community. And so we get to go serve and to do movie nights and to meet a lot of new people and to share the gospel. For one of our, for two of our community groups, it's Fidelis Way. It's a local housing authority right down the street from here. And so we get to show up at Fidelis Way and do things like upward basketball, or we get to do things like a movie night or like an Easter egg hunt. And we get to meet residents and love them and talk with them about our church and about Jesus. For one of our community groups here soon is going to be Exploring Christianity, a group that's just for seekers and skeptics to come and explore. What does it mean to be a Christian? Are the claims of Jesus authentic? We have these different pockets of people. These are practical ways together as a group that we're trying to go out and love people, to serve them, to show them just how good God has been to us. That's what we're trying to do together as a church. And that's what we've been called to do. It's, it's in our name. Even the church is named after the city on a hill. Why do we call it that? Why, where do we get that from? It comes from scripture. This is Matthew chapter five. This is Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about what does it mean to be a city on a hill? Matthew five, verses 14 through 16. Jesus says to Christians, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, go and love people, do good deeds in the world and let your light shine before, before them so they could know the God that you know. That's who we're trying to be. A city on a hill to love Boston, to love our community, to go and serve people and also to share with them about Jesus, to give them the gospel. That's what we want to do. It got me so excited. I was talking with another pastor in our neighborhood who's been here for decades. And he was telling me about another low-income housing authority in our neighborhood, Faneuil Gardens, that his church has partnered with for, I think, something like 20 years. And he was just telling me all these stories about people that they've met, that they've been able to love and care for, and people who have come and joined their church, people that they've seen go from not knowing Jesus and being far from God to being saved, to knowing Jesus and loving him. He's even telling me the story of someone that they got to help see through college and like give some of that life coaching and help like see them on their way to be able to grow up and become an adult. Makes me so excited because we have an opportunity as a church to do that, to love our community, to do this mission together as a group, not to be lone ranger evangelists, just trying to go and share the gospel one-on-one. So please do that. But we're trying to love people together. Jesus has told us in John 13 that we will be known by the love that we have for one another. 
our community. It's one of our most powerful apologetics for the gospel. When people see Christian community, they see something different. They see we have a different foundation, a different identity. And that's attractive to people. We want to invite people together. Would you come and see Jesus? Would you come and meet him with my, with my community group? I have a few questions just to help us think through practically. What does it look like for us to do this in our lives? Maybe for you, where do you need to gather regularly together with your community group to reach non-Christians? Maybe you need to commit to try to reach a pocket of people with your community group. Where do you need to start gathering regularly with your community group? Maybe this is informal hangout times. What are, what are the rhythms of life that you can build in to reach a certain pocket of people together to go to find Alice Way or exploring Christianity or Brighton Main Streets? Another question that I think is helpful, how will you bless those you're being sent to in word and deed? We don't want to just seem like as Christians that we're just trying to take up this bigger portion of the market by selling this message that tries to get people in. That's not what we're doing. We want people to see just how good God is by blessing people, not just in word, but also in deed. What does it look like for you to do that, to be a blessing to your community around you? Who, how will you pray for those that God is sending you to? Maybe once a week, you can sit down and pray for a pocket of people that your community group is trying to reach. Or maybe if you're not in a community group, maybe this looks like praying for a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. Who is it that you need to pray for that they would come and meet Jesus? I heard a really convicting question the other week that uh, if God saved every person that you prayed for, that they would become a Christian. If God saved every person that you prayed for in the last week, how many people would be in heaven? That was so convicting. I'm like, ooh, that hurts. Like we, we need to pray for people that they would actually be saved. God works through that. God is so good. He hears our prayers and he uses them to actually save people. So maybe how, how do you need to pray for those God's, God is sending you to? A last question, what friends, neighbors, or coworkers do you need to invite to join you? It's fascinating to me that in Boston, when we get practical with serving the community, non-Christians love to join in. Maybe you have a friend, neighbor, coworker, they would never come to church or they think Bible study is just weird, but I bet they would join you to go and serve a local housing authority. Maybe you need to invite them in. Would you come and help me serve my community? And hey, some of my friends from church, we're doing this together. Would you come join us and volunteer? It's a really practical way to bring people into our community, to love them and show them how good God is. And the reason we do this is because we want non-Christians to come and experience the glory of God in our spiritual temple in the church. This is what God has done in us. He has sent Jesus to be our better priest. You and I, we have failed in so many ways. We weren't able to obey God like we were supposed to. We were far from God. We were impure, unholy. And so we were separated from him. But what Jesus came and did is he, he was the better priest. He lived a perfect life, completely in line with the law of God. He never disobeyed at all. And then what Jesus did is on the cross, he was our sacrificial lamb. Jesus said, I will go in to the center of the temple. I will go into the very presence of God and I will give up my life as a sacrifice in your place so that you could be reconciled with God, so you could be made clean, so you could be made new. And we get that by believing in him. We get brought from darkness to light. And that's what we want our community to see. This is beautiful gospel that God's given to us. Christian community is incredibly unique. It's different from any other kind of community in the world. 
because we're built on a unique foundation of Jesus Christ. We're given a unique identity as the people of God, and we're given a unique mission to proclaim the excellencies of God to the world around us. Let's be that kind of community. Let's live that out to our world. Boston needs it. Let's be that. Let's pray. 